Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we get into some weird places and phenomenon. Hallie has a plethora of fun stories from lightning storms that never end until the time that the meat fell from the sky in Kentucky. And Nathan takes us to a small, sleepy corner of Pennsylvania to a community called Hellam Township. The story goes that in the woods, there are seven gates, and if you pass through them in just the right order, they will lead you right to hell. As always, expect some foul language, and let's get ready for another human exception. Your first this time? <laughs> Tweet. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some weird weather stuff. I'm in. Because Hallie's not allowed to pick the topics anymore. <laughs> 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 but, of course, in usual fashion, I must find strange things. Um, so I picked four topics. And I'm going to give you all the option of what you want first. Ready? Okay. So we have uh, the Kentucky meat r- shower. We mm-hmm. have slope point in New Zealand and what that has to do with weather. Uh, why it was forbidden to say the word tornado until the 1950s in the U.S. And the most electric place on Earth. I want to know why it's forbidden to say the word tornado. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I want to know about the most electric place on Earth. Okay, okay. So we'll do those two first. Okay. So let me scroll through here. Yes, I did not know about this. As a kid, I was obsessed with tornadoes. And if you had told me this, I would have been like, well, that's stupid. Because it's very stupid. Uh, It's great. So... Tornado forecasting was once banned in the U.S. before 1950. So at the yes, so at the time the uh, Weather Bureau was being developed, and it was going through various stages of that development. So the use of the word tornado in forecasts was strongly discouraged, and at other times forbidden because there was a fear that mentioning tornadoes would cause panic. So. This is the purest story of we don't trust people to be smart enough. (laughs) But also that combined with not enough knowledge. Yeah, so this is fine. Um, Tornadoes were considered to be these like horrible, fast striking monsters capable of uh, totally unpredictable acts of devastation and death. I don't see how any of that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The rationale for it. Oh, and if I need to be very specific, if you live in an area that is not, um, that you don't get tornadoes, um, they're horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they're horrifying. Uh, be very careful if you go, and you probably are aware of what a tornado is, but if you go look videos up online, just be very cautious about that because they're they're horrifying. I have been close to a handful um, over my years. And we always used to be told that if the sky goes yellow green, you get your ass out of there. <laughs> and they're not yeah, wrong. I yeah, I can't imagine living in an area where that's a thing that could happen. Yep. it's They're not even that common in Ohio. We're too far north and too far east in a lot of ways. Um, But we also aren't flat like the plains of places like Kansas and Oklahoma, where a tornado will just go until it spins itself out. Whereas here, for it to drop on you, I used to, when I was a kid, we used to live on the highest point in one of the counties, or one of the highest points, I guess I should say. And we'd always said that there's no way a tornado was going to happen up here unless it literally dropped on us. Yeah, because they can't they can't go uphill. They don't have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's not you basically have to have it like dropped on you. 
from my understanding. Now, please don't write me if I'm incorrect. It's just what a science teacher once told me and I never bothered to check. So I probably should have thought about that before I said it. I don't know. <laughs> but it was basically like up a small mountain. So everyone should just watch Twister. And that's what I have to say about that. It's Kansas. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Helen Hunt and like fucking Texas. Right. Like. <laughs> yep. So anyways, I, I what's funny to me about this whole thing is they're like, we don't want people to panic because no one knows anything about tornadoes except they're really s- dark, scary clouds that then suddenly rip your your uh, roofs off your house. This is what people think of them. I'm like, where's I don't see where you're wrong. <laughs> so your 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 basis is flawed. <laughs> so, anyways, mm-hmm. but at the time they they were almost impossible to predict. The technology had just not caught up with. Uh, scientific understanding, and there was very little of that, and then public knowledge, quote-unquote. And as the weather patterns were led to um, better documentation and better research, and then, of course, then the mystery and the whole enigma behind them and the fear kind of doesn't absolve itself, but people just have a better understanding. So up until 1950, the Weather Bureau um, had banned this uh, method of prediction. They had banned the word even. And then they revoked the ban in 1950 because uh, the research was getting better. And what was funny was that when you go and you look at um, some of the like storm predictor websites for the National Weather Service and that kind of thing, actually had a really good quote that said, tornadoes were for the most dark and mysterious menaces of unfathomable power, fast striking monsters from the sky capable of sudden and unpredictable acts of death and devastation. And then they don't follow that up with, and we weren't wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I don't again, see how this is wrong. But it was really interesting because a lot of the research began in the 1880s with these different lists of what they thought were criteria for conditions for tornadoes to develop. Um, But those even fell out of favor. And most of them were pretty spot on, at least on some of the conditions. Because once again, even before this whole ban on the word tornado, the government was afraid of causing needless panic. So this is twice now <laughs> that we just forgot that, yes, tornadoes are scary, but maybe not telling people there might be a tornado coming at them could lead to more problems. Nah, can't go wrong. No, just go outside and see what that dark cloud's about. <laughs> Stand out there. Um, and then there were two... Um, very, I also followed that up with looking into Miller and Fawbush. These were two meteorologists uh, who were connected to the Air Force. They were Captain, uh, what was his name? Captain Robert Miller and Major Ernest Fawbush, who were the first to figure out a reliable way to predict tornadoes uh, after the big 1948 tornado that hit Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma and caused over $10 million worth of damage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they were the first ones who really led to modern criteria. So they made all these composite charts and they juxtaposed data from different altitudes. They noted wind direction and temperature and moisture. And they were really the ones who brought thinking more into the modern age. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. So tornadoes, that's tornadoes. And then you wanted the lightning one? Yeah. Oh, yes. I have video. Hold on. I don't know what that voice is. Hold on a second. (laughs) It's your new character, obviously. Obviously. Uh, So you can see this happen, which is pretty cool. This is a video from Atlas Obscura. You can look it up very easily. I love their website. To see Venezuela's everlasting lightning storm and the weather conditions that cause it. I'm so obsessed with this. Oh my gosh. It's I fucking love it. Amazing. And I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of this. And I was like, oh my God. This so, is on the bucket list, actually. <laughs> I would be terrified. I would be terrified. It's so 10 hours at a time. Jesus. Yep. 
This happens yep. where the Catatumbo River flows into Lake uh, Maracaibo in Venezuela. And so for anywhere between roughly 140 to 160 nights out of the year, for 10 hours at a time, the area above this part of the river where it flows into the lake uh, deals with a constant lightning storm that produces as many as 280 strikes per hour. Per hour. Per hour. Um, It's known as... uh, Relampago de Catatumbo, uh, which means lightning in Spanish. So lightning of the Catatumbo. So does it always just like striking water? Like, sorry, what was that? Is it always just striking the water? Like, I'm thinking about like it's so much lightning all the time. There must be damage. Yeah, it's the sky over the river. Okay, so like yep. it doesn't actually touch down on the ground. No, or, not as far as yeah. anything that I saw. Um, let me go back through here real quick. Uh, no, but there was some interesting. There have been some interesting studies that have gone on uh, since the sixties. Uh, there's a, a a researcher we'll talk about who went out there a lot, <laughs> uh, but it has more than one epicenter supposedly so hmm. this is why i love stuff like this also is because even with all of our technology we're kind of like maybe over there no idea <laughs> also maybe over there <laughs> so that was actually first written about this lightning storm in a poem uh dated back to 1597 and it's a poem called the dragon tea by lope de vega And he tells of Sir Francis Drake's 1595 attempt to take the city of Maracaibo by night, only to have his plans foiled when the lightning storm's flashes gave away his position to defenders. Amazing. (laughs) Ah, fucking amazing. You're like, you're you're doing guard rotation, right? On top of the wall or whatever, or the wall around like the monastery or some shit, I'm sure. And you're just walking around and you're like, hey, George. See that shit? Fuck's that up there? That's a fucking boat. Oh fuck! And then alarm bells start going off. That is my uh, humble reinterpretation of events. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> this happened more than once, though, when defenders were able to spot oncoming attackers. Um, so it's been documented again on July twenty fourth, eighteen twenty three, when during the Venezuelan War of Independence. Spanish ships were revealed by the lightning and defeated by uh, Simon Bolivar's upstart Navy. Because the lightning is visible from over 400 kilometers away. Wow. Yeah. You imagine going down there and they'd be like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) And your neighbor goes, it's fine. You're fine. It's really just, yeah, ignore the flashing lights in the sky. It must be, like, super loud all the time. I don't know. Because it's not a... um... We're going to talk about ionized methane gas. (laughs) Hot. (laughs) With storm clouds. Yeah. So it could be more than just loud. Could be. Interesting. Um, So uh, still on the regular, the lightning is used as a navigation aid by ships. And it is known in the uh, vernacular of sailors as the Maracaibo Beacon. And there's no... Oh, you... uh, I should read my next fucking sentence, y'all. Jesus. Uh, I did read this. I just don't remember. There's little to no sound. Because the lightning moves from cloud to cloud. Weird. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Doesn't hit the ground. It just bounces around like a pinball. So um, no one really knew for a very long time why this would happen. There was a theory that ionized methane gas rising from the Catatumbo River bogs would meet with storm clouds coming down from the Andes, creates the perfect conditions. Now most scientists attribute the lightning to a uh, regular low-lying air current coming from the Caribbean 
And they've actually been able to set up early warning systems based on forecasts of when the lightning storms will be uh, showing up so that people can avoid them. Hmm. Or go out and watch them. Or go out and watch them. Like some people might. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, highest concentration of lightning strikes usually happens in October, and it hits its lowest point in January and February. So with over 1.2 million lightning discharges per year, this area and this storm is thought to be the world's greatest producer of ozone. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's like replenishing the ozone layer? Uh, Yeah. Well, they don't really know because they've not been able to tell whether those molecules ever actually end up in the ozone layer. It'd be kind of dope if it did. (laughs) Don't know that it's going to fix it. But But we can try. We can try, damn it. More lightning strikes. Okay. Someone shakes it piece of sheet metal in the background yeah (laughs) (laughs) so there was a a russian researcher whom i alluded to earlier so between 1966 and 1970 andrei zavrotsky actually got into this area more than three times with the assistance from uh university of the andes and he concluded that the lightning has multiple epicenters in the marshes particularly in the national park and some areas uh, west of other smaller lakes there that kind of flow along the river. And then even in 1991, he suggested that the phenomenon occurred due to warm and cold air currents meeting in the area. And his study also speculated that there was an isolated cause for the lightning, that maybe it couldn't happen anywhere else in the world because of uh, the presence of uranium in the bedrock. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Huh. Like perfect wild and out conditions for this one thing to happen in this one place. That's real cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, between 1997 and 2000, there were four more studies proposed uh, focused on the methane produced by the swamps and the massive oil deposits in the area were also contributing to the cause of the phenomenon. And uh, other studies have indicated that this model, however, is contradicted by observed behavior of the lightning. And it predicts that there would be, they predicted there should be more lightning in the dry season and less in the wet season, which is totally opposite of what actually happens. So it's kind of wild. There have been other universities from the area who have been measuring the impact of different atmospheric variables on the lightning. They're looking at daily and seasonal and year-to-year variability. And their conclusion was that there's a relationship between what's known as the intertropical convergence zone, El Nino Southern Oscillation, and the Caribbean low-level jet winds. And then local winds and probably methane and probably uranium are all tied together meaning that this really, truly can't happen anywhere else in the world. It's pretty dope. That is crazy. It's pretty cool. I was really excited when I found that, because I was like, that's awesome! So yeah. Okay. That's that. So we have Kentucky Meat Shower, or the winds of Slope Point, New Zealand. Let's do the winds. When yeah, save the best for last. Save the best. <laughs> the meat shower thing makes me want to gag every single fucking time. All right, let me pull this up because I love this picture. These are some of the trees of Slope Point, New Zealand. That's fucking amazing. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I love this. Y'all have That's to go so look, cool. look at these pictures. I know Kayla will probably be able to get one for the website. It's pretty cool. So Slope Point, New Zealand is the most southern spot on New Zealand's South Island. And it sits on a set of cliffs that drop right off into the sea. This place is nuts. So it is, here we go. It is 4,803 kilometers from the South Pole 
It is 5,140 kilometers from the equator. And because of that, and the way that the winds move, the wind is so crazy up there that these trees are permanently weirdly warped that sit on top of the cliff. Yes. <laughs> I know. So it's getting wind from the Antarctic Ocean uninterrupted. And these trees were originally put there because sheep farmers planted them to give their flocks shelter from the wild weather. Made total sense. But as they got hit over the years and over the decades, this cold air that hits them, and it hits the first thing it encounters, which are these damn trees, because no one else was insane enough to raise sheep on this island. <laughs> because it's uninhabited. <laughs> the trees get all the brunt of the wind. And when you go out there and you look up through the trees, and if the sun is shining directly down, if you're down there at the right spot, it basically looks like the most wild, surreal art you'll ever see. <laughs> yeah. So when you go and look at these trees, it is pretty cool. Here's the sign that's out on the one end of the cliff that shows you exactly where you're at between the equator and the South Pole. <laughs> Almost even. <laughs> That's yep. amazing. It's pretty great. There's nothing out there. Like I said, it's only sheep and the herders. And they only go out there during uh, certain times through the day because of the way the winds move. Um, you can't get to this. It is blocked off from the public. So it's only researchers and people who have business out there who are allowed to be there, which makes sense because apparently that wind is intense. Uh, so there was a novelist who once described, uh, novelist Trevor Cree, who once described the winds of Slope Point like this, quote, it is not a wind that will necessarily break and snap at will, although clearly it can. It is its sheer relentlessness, like a gnawing toothache that never ceases its total submission until a total submission from the victim is achieved. Yep. Damn. And there's no way you could grow anything out there now, any new trees, because look what happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Atlas Obscura has some nice pictures of it from the few people who are actually allowed to go out there. It's just the trees and the sheep, yo. <laughs> Amazing. I know. I was that I was like, that's not real. That can't be. They look like they were the worst hairdo on the planet. <laughs> permanently pushed back. <laughs> okay. So that was that little bit. Talk about meat rain. Oh, I don't ever want to say meat that rain. sentence ever again. If you don't know this story, I'm pretty sure we all know this story, but if you don't know this story, it's real gross. So be ready. There's the one preserved piece of meat in a jar for you. Mm, it looks like bacon and maple syrup that's been left in. Throw up, oh. Kayla. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, it's like the early days of curing bacon and, oh, and maple syrup oh, and I hate it. It's 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 very unappetizing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. this is bad, y'all. Why? Why do I pick the cabinet of curiosities bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> every time. Every time. All right. All right. So on March 10th, 1876, a headline ran in the New York Times that said, Flesh descending in a shower, an astounding phenomenon in Kentucky, fresh meat like mutton or venison falling from a clear sky. So gross. <laughs> Get up and to I, people. Oh my meat. God. Oh, free meat. I want to point out that that piece of meat in a jar is kept at Transylvania University. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but of course, the way that the dispatches worked at the time, the newspaper, uh, the New York Times ran that story on March 10th. And this actually happened a week earlier on March 3rd. So March 3rd, 1876. Big old hunks of flesh fell mm. from the sky over Olympia Springs and Bath. County, Kentucky. 
Um, mm -hmm. It mostly happened near the house of a man named Alan Crouch. His wife was outside making soap when it happened. Uh, quote, the meat, which looked like beef, fell all around her. The sky was perfectly clear at the time, and she said it fell like large snowflakes. Excuse me while I go throw up a minute. <laughs> so I'm just trying to imagine. She was like, is this kind of like, is, is it kind of like strips of bacon? Like, what does it look like? We'll get into the texture oh, and okay. properties of the meat. <laughs> um, and some, some pretty wild theories uh, that were run at the time and then later. Oh, God. Hmm. All right. So at the residence, after she freaked out and ran away, valid, a uh, nearby neighbor, Mr. Harrison Gill, and I would like to point out whose veracity was described by the New York Times as unquestionable. I love that statement of character back in the 1800s. Unquestionable by whom? Who questions the questions? <laughs> Let's go on. <laughs> Who decided this? Okay. Uh, he visited the day after the supposed meat fell from the sky, and he said that he could see it sticking out of fences and scattered across the ground. One of them was about 10 centimeters squared. Most of them were about five by five. They were apparently fresh when they fell, but had been left out all night, and now they were disgusting. Mm. Two unidentified gentlemen. Wonder why they were identified. Because they showed up to taste it. Of course. And they declared someone had, had to. Someone had to lick it for science. No. <laughs> lick it lick it for science. That's a <laughs> phrase. <laughs> That's a phrase. We need to put that on a shirt. Lick it for science. I'm so proud. Oh, <laughs> God. They said it uh, tasted like either venison or mutton. Okay. Uh, it is... It was supposedly kind of looked like beef, according to some eyewitnesses. But in the first report to the Scientific American, uh, there's a conflicting report with the whole venison or um, mutton thing, because then apparently two other people said it tasted like beef. So there's a whole <laughs> bit of question. There was a local hunter who identified it as bear meat. And okay. yep. Mm -hmm. And that was from a hunter who apparently knew his stuff. So his veracity was unquestionable as well. I have, I have questions. Um, and then later, I love how all of my research was like, well, this guy just showed up and then he got some of the specimens and then he analyzed some of the specimens that had been preserved in glycerin. And he said the meat wasn't actually meat at all. He said it was Nostock. The fuck is Nostock? Mm -hmm. This is disgusting. Okay. 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 So just prepare. If you thought it was gross before. So Nostock is what happens when cyanobacteria forms colonies uh, and they then get surrounded by pro a protective, basically a protective jelly, like a gelatinous envelope. It swells up whenever the it rains. Mm-hmm. And it's so inconspicuous when it's dry that for many years, people believed Nostock to float on the breeze until it rained, which caused it to fall from the sky like hail. And colorful nicknames hmm. were Star Jelly, Star Slugger, Star Jelly. <laughs> and my favorite, Witch's Butter. Witch's Butter. <laughs> Those are good names. Yes. So Nostock is a, a type of cyanobacteria. It is a little flesh colored or kind of like a pale off white, which is just disgusting. Um, cool. Some people have said it tastes like frog or chicken legs. Nom, nom, nom. Oh okay. God. Okay. So <laughs> the only problem with this theory is that it didn't rain that night. Not hmm. like water, wet rain. Right. Which is what is needed for the Nostock to like swell up and appear. So if we rule that out, 
there were other theories that were then floated. So this guy who said it was Nostok, which fine theory, but not without the rain. Um, he also gave a couple of the mystery meat samples to an experienced histologist and president of the New York Scientific Association, a Dr. Edwards, who said it was likely lung tissue of a human infant or horse. What? Yep. That's what? Yep. And then another histologist, Dr. Arnold, studied it and said that it probably was also, he basically agreed and said it was some kind of animal cartilage and lung tissue. So so weird. People Mm -hmm. just out there like coughing up lungs? Well, I was thinking like stuffing innards into circus cannons or (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Like Oh god. No. So how did it get in the air? (laughs) We're getting there. Um, Eventually, there were seven seven samples that were examined by several scientists. Say that five times fast. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Who wrote this? Uh, uh, They confirmed two of the samples to be lung tissue, three to be muscular tissue, and two were said to be made of cartilage. So, okay, we're getting somewhere. We're now getting like more (laughs) consistent results. And then the best explanation for the, quote, shower of quivering flesh. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. Uh, Who wrote in 1876 in the Louisville Medical News that it was quite literally a coordinated bout of projectile vulture vomit. Vulture (laughs) vomit. Yep. Projectile vulture vomit. Coordinated. Coordinated for a reason. So this guy, Dr. Kastenbein, he decided to get his own sample from one of these uh, samples that's been kind of running around. He set it on fire. What? And observed that it smelled of rancid mutton. And so his theory, uh, one that was suggested actually originally by an old farmer in Ohio, was that the, quote, disgorgement of some vultures that were sailing over the spot from their immense height, the particles were scattered by the prevailing wind over the ground, he wrote. The variety of tissue discovered, muscular, connective, fatty, structureless, etc., can be explained only by this theory. There are two species of vulture that are in Kentucky, the black vulture and the turkey vulture. Uh, We'll get them around here, too. Uh, both of which are known to projectile vomit their stomach contents as a, either a defense mechanism or ways to make themselves light enough for flight. <laughs> yep. So if it was windy and they had just eaten and then we're like, oh man, I just ate that dead sheep. Mm, too heavy. Need to get rid of some of it. Yeah. That's (laughs) hilarious. It makes a kind of sense. Yeah. If if they were flying into the wind, maybe, and were having trouble, because turkey vultures are fucking huge. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. That's That's it. Amazing. That's it. Turkey or turkey vulture vomit. I love it. And this poor That's... lady who's making soap in her front yard <laughs> just gets peeped on. It's even more hilarious that people were like, <laughs> well, now I'm going to taste it to see what it actually I is. No, it's so bad. Which means the two guys who <laughs> ate it and said it was mutton were right. They were wrong. But they missed the part where it had already been digested. <laughs> Some may call that a, a delicacy. Oh, gross! Uh, uh, I hate everything right now. I love this. This is so amazing. Oh, it's so nasty. So that's me. I, I you started us off with, uh, yeah, 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 yep. Started us off with tornadoes and ended it with with vulture vomit. Amazing. (laughs) As only I can do. (laughs) All right, Nathan, what do you got? Well, I guess the first question is who wants to go to hell? (laughs) 
I thought I was already on my way. I mean, how close are you to Pennsylvania? <laughs> Depends on which end of it. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, <coughs> Please tell so, me after the the whole nonsense on DMTK Chef's Night, we're going to be doing like a sex positive episode at some point because that'd be great. Oh yeah! Oh definitely. We, we're, to. we need to do yeah. many sex episodes. <laughs> that's not a set you get to say very often. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. All right. Let's go to hell. All right. Let's go to hell. Uh, okay. So we're going to talk about a weird little piece of Pennsylvania folklore uh, that revolves around the seven gates of hell. Uh I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin with this. Um, well, the... usually the first one, right? Yeah. Well, at the yeah. Beginning. How do you how do you find the first one, and then mm-hmm. eventually, what order do you need to go through these gates before you're in hell? Um, well, I'm not gonna fucking tell you because damn it, nobody ever makes it past the fifth. Uh, <laughs> Do they just not like have the right travel papers or what? Um, sounds like they definitely have the right travel papers. <laughs> oh my god! So there is a small little place uh, called um, the Hellum Township out in Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe it is out in York County, um, and. Oh, sorry. It is just outside the city of York uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, oh, okay. So the uh, the original story about the Seven Gates of Hell sort of revolve around this uh, asylum that was built in the early 1700s. Um, sorry, not not the not the asylum, but uh, Helm itself was established in the early 1700s, so about uh, 1739. Um, the asylum was already there? Mm-mm. <laughs> they built it out there. Um, you, you mean it didn't come with hell? It might have. Uh, the <laughs> asylum is connected to the reason why the gates exist. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, we know that you know, 200 years ago, Plus two hundred plus years ago, almost almost three hundred years ago now. Jesus, um, our <clears throat> treatment of mental health patients was not the greatest. Mm-hmm. And you don't say, <clears throat> yeah. So this asylum that was built. Uh, was built out on a road that, and as the story goes, either Toad Road or Trout, uh, I believe Trout Road. Um, Toad Road didn't actually exist, uh, but it was called the Toad Road Asylum. Um, But it was off of Trout Road in, in the area. So they basically put this asylum way out of the township limits because they didn't want insane people mixing with the regulars. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. And on a road that doesn't exist, just to confuse them? Pretty much. Well, I mean, one of the roads <laughs> did. Um, but uh, in the 1800s, um, was when this uh, this asylum was built. People were um, obviously they had a bunch of people there. Eventually, a massive fire broke out, and it was so far out of the township limits that 
um, <laughs> that firefighters couldn't get there in time. So most people either had to flee or they were trapped inside and they died. Oh, geez. Yeah. <clears throat> so the there was so many um, patients that I guess escaped and obviously the stigma around the time created a lot of uh, fear and aggression towards patients within the asylum uh -huh. that the search parties were um, uh, were pretty aggressive and violent. So uh -huh. essentially folks who the idea is that people who died within this fire and people who were essentially beaten into submission by these search parties, all of that like energy, negative energy and stuff sort of comes together to creating this thing, um, this piece of hell. Hmm. Um, so eventually uh, there is a gate that kind of closes off this area, a rusted metal gate. Uh, the stories say that you can obviously see the gate uh, during the day because it's just the main rusted gate. But the only way to see the other six gates is at night. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, finding the weird Pennsylvania travel guide book, <laughs> the uh, the investigator that went there with his with their uh, with their crew basically said, "Okay, so along the path there are a lot of like overturned trees." that could be mistaken for um, for these other gates, especially at night when things are dark and you have barely any light coming through. They can be mistaken for literal arches over the, over the pathway. Uh, however, based on the story, nobody makes it past gate number five and comes back to tell the story. <laughs> so okay. uh, he's like, we went to gate number five, and then we decided we were going to go back because let's not push our luck. We made it this far. <laughs> uh, the story is, is anyone who makes it through all seven of the gates will appear at the previous wreckage of the burned down asylum, even though it's all gone and cleared out now, um, which is considered one of the entrances to hell. Okay. Fun. All right, yeah. let's do it. Because of all of this shit that went down, which I mean, yeah, I, I expect that the fact that these people were hunted down and beaten um, because they escaped after a fire uh, and obviously probably other inhumane conditions, um, I would expect that that might be a thing. Um, there are There is one other story that persists around the um, around the gates of hell, and it's that a uh, a doctor who lived in the area um, for whether he was like psychotic or just a little off his rocker or whatever had built these gates and used them as a way to sort of lure people into the forest and see what would happen if people, you know, got obsessed with a thing. Um, and he was basically, uh, 
he said it said that he owned the land and they were just really weird looking gates that led people deeper and deeper into the forest in the area where this um asylum was so yeah that's weird yeah that's a little spooky it is uh obviously because it's a myth and there are folks running around rampant trying to figure shit out you know dark tourists uh <laughs> it's uh caused a lot of frustration and upset with residents of the helm township uh the township's own website has actually gone ahead and been like these aren't true stop coming to our place um that's exactly and, what you would say if it was true. Right. Uh, supposedly, there was the, the asylum was never... Um, supposedly, there was never actually an asylum on uh, Trout Run Road. Uh, however, the doctor in question did exist and only ever built one gate on his property. Okay. <laughs> why 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 would you only build one because you need to get in and out of the property I thought he was trying to build gates to hell <laughs> what the hell yep do we have like any pictures here um like barely not a lot of here. Let's see the. I mean, there's no pictures because it's all. Just like. Yeah, but I want to know the one that's extra is actually made. I want to get an idea of what this looks like. Oh. If it doesn't have a grinning skull on top of it, I'm going to be very upset. Can you just... Damn okay. it! I was going to say, um, yeah, if you find a picture, can you just paste it in the chat? If I open a link, my computer will die, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, there's no... Besides the rusted, like, farm gate that's in there, it's not really... Uh, let's see. Let me... Let me give you a snap of this one. <laughs> What's that voice? What was that voice? Ah, I don't know. Nathan's I don't know. But... Character. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I don't yeah. know, but I'm using it for my next NPC. <laughs> uh, so this is the PDF of the book that I was reading, but like, it's just a rust, oh. old rusted farm gate. Like you'd expect a cattle guard. Oh, to that's be like under nothing. It, it is yeah. nothing. Yeah. No, it's nothing. Um, But it does wander farther into this forest, which I guess are where the other gates are located. If it's dark and spooky and you think trees are gates, but yeah. <laughs> huh. Um. So yeah, the, the rumor is that a bunch of people have gone missing. Um, oh my God. This is this perfect for the Atlas Obscura page. Try as they might to dissuade visitors, Helm Township still receives its fair share of health seekers, as well as numerous satanic cults who reputedly <laughs> reputedly use Helm as a meeting place from time to time. <laughs> there have been numerous instances of residents calling the police as visitors trespass through private land in search okay. of the gates. It's this little on the nose, boys. No. I love it. <laughs> so, uh, the Hellum Township was actually, uh, there's a rumor that it was named after Hell itself, uh, but actually it was more of a uh, a corruption of the Hallam Shire area of South Yorkshire in England. Okay, um, yeah. So, uh, uh. You know, took you on a trip to hell and then told you that it wasn't real. Hope you had fun. Damn it. That's <laughs> on a t-shirt. 
<laughs> Took you on a trip to hell? Something along the lines of, you know, like I went to hell. That was this T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. I went. I went to. I wanted to go to hell, but it turned out to be Hellum, and now I'm just confused. <laughs> so are the neighbors. So right, exactly, and so... pissed because no one wants people to go <sighs> walking around on their shit. Yeah, this is this, is this is not Montero, friends. <laughs> Uh, well, that was it. much better than missing persons <laughs> in the latter half of <laughs> I have more questions, Kayla, and they all re revolve around what the fuck? Don't worry, when I cover Locust, you'll think the same thing. No, <laughs> and aren't, weren't the Locusts who are coming up out of the ground, haven't they been hibernating for like ever? You'll see when I cover the story. <laughs> yeah, no, isn't that supposed to be like now? Are you talking about cicadas? Yeah, cicadas. There we go. That's cicadas, not locusts. Yeah, it's different. Different. Yeah. All I all I can think of for either one are a bunch of bugs, and bugs. I immediately go, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll finish writing up my story, and then we'll plan some time to go over that <laughs> special episode. Locusts. Are they coming to your town? Or are Not they like really if you're North America? Plague. <laughs> I've never understood that. Which biblical plagues? I get that they're just, you know, trying to explain something naturally occurring. But it's not always because of the flying spaghetti monster. Calm down. Uh, yeah. Oh man, guys! Okay, we, we can stop recording now. At this point, I think. Oh, uh, oh uh, okay. You say that, <laughs> and then Craig doesn't want to leave. I haven't told him to. And that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, I'll get into the bizarre disappearance of the North American locust swarms. They used to happen quite consistently, but around the 1900s, the locusts just disappeared. And this was before the invention of pesticides. This makes North America and Antarctica the only two continents that don't experience the occasional locust swarm, so uh, what's up with that? As always, links, sources, pictures, all that can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. Do you have an idea for something you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi? We now have so many ways for you to contact us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Human Exception, email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com, or join us on our new Discord server. You can find the link on our contact page. Keep on being excellent, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Oh,